Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Be not so wholly cruel, for love is holy. And my integrity nan you the crafts that you do charge men with. Stand no more off. Give yourself unto my desires. Say you shall be mine, and my love shall persevere forever as it begins. Give me that ring. <laughs> I'll lend it thee, my dear, but I have no power to give it. Will you not, my lord? It is an honour belonging to my house, bequeathed down to me from my ancestor, and it would be the greatest dishonour for me to lose. Well, my honour is such a ring. My chastity is the jewel of our house, bequeathed down to me from my ancestry, which were the greatest dishonour in the world for me to lose. Here, here, um, take my ring. Yea, my house, my honour, my life be thine, and I'll bid by thee. Hello and welcome to the plays the thing that was Bertram wooing Diana in All's Well That Ends Well, Act Four. We're so glad that you have joined us. My name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Nora Ancrum. I'm Matt Bianco, lover of Bertram. And lover of Bertram. <laughs> okay, you're going <laughs> to... Whoa. You, you say that right at kind of like what might be Bertram's lowest moment. I know. I know. Here he says to Diana, <laughs> the woman who is not his wife, take my ring, my house, mine honor, yea, my life be thine, and I'll be bid by thee. This is like everything that our wonderful char- character, Helena, wants. And instead, he gives it to Diana, a maid who's kind of been set up by Helena to sleep with him, but she actually won't sleep with him. Helena instead will kind of like sneak in the bed. That's what's going on. This is kind of like, that's the first of the two traps that is set in this play, right? The other one, the other trap is for Paroles, this kind of dandy, this foppish character who is kind of the devil that is sitting on Bertram's shoulder, you know, advising him to leave everything good and to go to war and to kind of emulate Paroles himself, who's just a despicable kind of character. That's what this scene is about. These two traps have been laid and both of them get sprung in this act and we've got to resolve it in the next act. Okay, that's our setup for the day. I might give a little bit more summary later, but that's basically, this is like the resolution, the, 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 um, this is the tricks get revealed or the, the um, 
snares go into effect in this act. Next act, it's going to be resolved. And Matt, you're not reading ahead. Right. But you know how this is going to end. Yes. You know that it's going to end with Bertram and Helena marrying. Right? right. You're not shocked by this. No. Okay. Here's my first question for the two of you. Does Shakespeare believe too much in marriage? Because we have a colossal, like Bertram has dug himself into such a terrible mess and has betrayed kind of like most everything that is good and holy. And Shakespeare is going to say, but you guys, great news. He and Helena are going to get married in the end. Great news. So that's my opening question. Is Shakespeare believing too much in marriage? No. No. I think I think we don't believe enough in it. So, I, I mean, I, I, one probably there's a more a more sacramental aspect to it than most of us have today moderns right and so that that which of course you could subscribe to him being believing too much in it if you don't believe it has any sacramental if you don't accept that it has a sacramental value i suppose and but then also it has a more there's a greater permanency to it for him right so like we wouldn't we might we might believe in it just about as much as we need to believe in it based on what it is for us in the sense that uh, you know, you wouldn't want to marry a scoundrel like that today because it's almost certain to just not continue. Right. Like it just, you just end it because it's, it would be a disaster, but for them, you know, ending it, it's not really a possibility. So right. it, it has to have its sacramental. I mean, it's, there's more time given to it to, to have its sacramental effects um, because you, you can't get out of it. So, and, Matt, wh why, why could they not get out of it in Shakespeare's day? <laughs> I mean, you want me to, uh, are you asking me a question about the history of that day and like what the narrative? Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're asserting it's, it, it seems like it's harder in that day to be done with a, mm -hmm marriage that you don't want to be in and can you give us any more about that uh i, I mean, mean is I, that more just like a comparison like divorce is pretty easy to procure in 2022 is that more of what your comment is well probably probably mostly it's it's that that i'm just thinking about how easy divorce is to procure in our day more yeah. than i'm thinking about it in his day but yeah i mean i you know the the church of england and the and the catholic church they don't they didn't really have the same kind of permissions for divorce that we, you know, we have today. So there would have been those kinds of limitations on it. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, in this place specifically, Shakespeare uses the institution of marriage as a plot point in a lot of his comedies. Mm. But in this one, particularly, I feel like it's part of the world of the play, right? It's part of the, the, setup uh it's yeah. necessary right because once they're married and they are already married you know legally by the king of france early on in like act two yeah. um then it's part of the like well now we're married so how do we how do we solve this problem within this tangled you know web that in this act gets the most tangled up and um mm -hmm. i think he uses it as as part of the the backdrop um and, and we've talked a lot about how Helena is, is sort of his, uh, acts as his, uh, sanctifier, right. Throughout the, the Axis Bertram's sanctifier and, um, and, and maybe even the institution itself mm. is part of that. Yeah. If you think of like much ado about, hold nothing. on, Matt, hold on, Matt. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Part of the institution of marriage, hold your thought, Matt, is like, it's also working toward Bertram's sanctification. That's what you're saying, Nora. It's not just Helena, but it's also the institution of marriage. We, it, we should approach the institution of marriage kind of like presuming, yeah, it's part of the sanctification of Bertram. 
especially in this world, yeah. right? Because like Matt's saying, it's it's a different, it's an entirely different legal setup, even even beyond the the moral implications. It's legally not an easy thing. Um, but it's funny because in in most cases you would see it reversed, right? You wouldn't see the 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 positions of power are reversed here in that the, it's the the woman, the wife who is pursuing this unwanted marriage, this unwanted union, and it's mm. the the husband that's running away from it. Mm -hmm. um, and in most cases, historically, that's not any, you know, it's not a real difficult thing for a guy to get out of, but it's more yeah. difficult for a woman, right? But, yeah. but Shakespeare sort of turned that on its head in this, in this particular yeah. way. Lovely. Yeah. I, I think, I'll, I'll, I mean, I want to comment on that before I say what I was going to say, if I can still remember what I was going to say. Um, the, the institution of marriage is so, it's so much a part of their world. Like, not just that it, that, that it existed and it existed in a certain way, but like that extends out to how people interact with each other. So if you think of, um, you know, in, in Anna Karenina, she wants the, she wants a divorce. Mm -hmm. And then her husband says, or somebody tells her that, well, it, it's not going to work out like you think it will. Like, you're not just going to go off with that guy and be happy. And then the entire community is going to accept you guys as this new, lovely couple based on your, your love. And then, but she says, but she, she fights it and says, no, I want this and I'm going to go be with him. And then, you know, she does. And then she can't go out in public and people, you know, rejecting her as a member of the society. And it's it's there's even some a little bit of that in here because when Bertram is wooing Diana, he says, uh, "This is in scene two. He says, when you are dead, you should be such a one as you are now, for you are cold and stern, and now you should be as your mother was when your sweet self was got." Which is you know kind of a weird way to ask a woman mm -hmm. to sleep with you. Right? And she says she then was honest, talking about her mother. Mm. And he says, so should you be. And then she says, no, my mother did but duty such, my Lord, as you owe to your wife. And so even in the interaction with Diana, right, there's this pressing him, pressing him to to you submit to the demands of marriage in their the duty world, of marriage, right? The duty yeah. of marriage that he's not willing to accept. But but she sees it as my mother did this. Your wife expects this from you. You know, I expect this from you kind of thing. And he's the whole world around him is is reinforcing this this view of marriage in that world. And he's well, he and Paroles, I suppose, are the ones that are kind of rejecting it, kind of rejecting it outright. So, yeah, uh, but I, what I was going to say about much ado about nothing is. Uh, even there, like there's a different view of marriage in that world compared to ours in that, that the way, the way Claudia rejects hero, it's so damaging that I cannot oh, yeah. imagine anybody in the 21st oh, yeah. century forgiving him and marrying him. I mean, I'm sure there right. are people who would, right? But I can't right. imagine, I can't think of people that would do that, but right. she right. does. And, and yeah. then, and then, you know, they live happily ever after or whatever, you know, um, we need Shakespeare to write a part two, I suppose, but. Well, I want to, I want to press pause right there. Cause I saw this production, Matt, Nora, I'd love to hear you comment on this. Um, at the, at the Oregon Shakespeare festival, it was a wonderful, brilliant rendering of much ado about nothing. And it was, it was in a lot of ways, it was a very contemporary kind of, setting for the play and i kept wondering what are they going to do at the end of the play mm. when hero what is the name of hero's eventual husband i always forget claudio claudio yeah what are they going to do when claudio and hero get married at the end here's how they did it they had that kind of like you know two marriages happening and mm. while beatrice and benedict are kind of together in the middle of the stage they had Hero and Claudio go to opposite corners of the stage, and Hero especially was kind of like prefigured on the stage. And her look as the lights go down were arms crossed, eyes cut over at Claudio, and everything about her demeanor said, This is not going to last. Wow. And it was, of course, that's not in the stage directions. It's just, it's not. 
but I think it was kind of a nod to what you're saying, Matt, that like that, what Claudio did to Hero. So just mm-hmm. to remind our audience, he falsely exposed Hero as cheating on him. Um, like some guy would kind of sneak up into her room and he had been, Claudio had been falsely informed that she was sleeping with this guy who would kind of sneak up to his room. And so he at there at the altar says, I know what you've been doing. You've been cheating on me, exposes her in front of her father, all of their wedding guests. It's absolutely humiliating. And it's a tough salvage to say, no, it all turns out in the end. Once Hero, I was just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kidding. (laughs) It's a tough salvage. And I, I don't know what someone, what an Englishman, you know, in the pit on next to the stage in 1603 would think about that ending, but it's tough. Mm. It's tough to accept today. And I thought that that rendering was a pretty neat way of doing it. Now, looking at our play. How did Joss Whedon do it? Do you remember? Oh, that's a great question. I don't remember. I saw that and really, really liked what he did, yeah. but I don't remember. Do you remember, Nora? I don't. No. Because they have a contemporary setting, too. I think in a contemporary setting, you almost have to do something like that because it doesn't make sense. But for me, I can read that as describing that world, and I... It makes sense to me. Like I can accept Right. Yeah. Well, because it, I mean, another thing that we're glossing over with the whole institution of marriage is that at that time it was, you know, kind of a, a necessary logistical move too, right? Um, as far as like yes. continuing in society and, and furthering the family and, and reproduction mm. and all of that, right? Yeah. Um, so which is not, you know, not a, a factor, not a stake in contemporary uh, world. So if you're going to set it in a different way, then you do have to sort of make, make adjustments, which was, which, you know, was a little bit of the, the trouble for us with, uh, Taming of the Shrew. Was the Taming of the Shrew, I bet. Same kind of thing. I yeah. bet. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, David Brooks did this article in the Atlantic Monthly in which he kind of made the case that we've put too much of an emphasis on the nuclear family and we've kind of ripped it out of the larger setting of the family that includes aunts and uncles and mm-hmm. grandparents. Mm. And so in a way, it puts so much pressure on this little organism called the like, nuclear I read that family. Article. Yeah. It's really good. It was really, good. really good. It was good. And when I think back to the time that this play was originally written, the number of social forces that existed to kind of like keep marriages intact and all of the damage that could be done by, let's face it, a husband walking, you know, because that's what it would have been more times than not. Um, There were huge impediments to that that have kind of been moved away today. Well, and then conversely supports for it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, because we see in the text, the mother is heavily involved, as we've noted from the beginning, and not only her mother, but Diana's mother is involved Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. plot with her. You know, there's all kinds of father figures involved, even though both of our protagonists don't have living fathers. Um, There's Mm. all kinds of people really invested in whether this relationship uh, continues or not. Yeah, yeah even all the, king, the way to right. the king. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Exactly. It, I, I think uh, to that to that end, the father figure point, especially the um, the lords, the way the lords step in and try to save, try to save Bertram from from paroles by exposing. Oh yeah, like that's just incredible to me. I mean, Agreed. You know, in yeah. my Act Two prediction, I thought it was going to be Lefeu that did that, but yeah, the lords are right there, man. Just exposing paroles. I think that your act two prediction, I think you should score points for that because the action was done, even though it was done by an actor who was not as you predicted. It doesn't matter because Lafue, you didn't know that Lafue was going to stay home with the King. Um, you didn't know, like, I don't even know. These two lords were barely existent in act They're two. They're not named, right? Yeah. <laughs> who right. uses unnamed lords to be heroes in a play? That's, that's a, that is a, an artistic failure on Shakespeare's <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. 
I'll accept um, the marriage and all well, of the stuff that happens, but do not use unnamed lords. As you <laughs> <laughs> okay. oh, no, I love that scene with the all of the disguises. And, and there's a whole uh, conversation about like, okay, listen, we have to have foreign speech so he doesn't yes. understand what we're saying. But remember, don't make it an actual foreign speech because right. he knows all these languages. Right, right. right. <laughs> I yeah, love that. All the, all the convoluted masking did like... Yes. Not let Paroles know that he's being, you know, I mean, probably whatever. none of it was even necessary. They just blindfold him. Yeah. You know, and but this it's a very convoluted plot. I love it. It's convoluted. needs points because sometimes their made up gibberish sounded like the words that were translated. Like, like I was yes. like, that lot that looks like an actual translation of the whatever, you know. It was fascinating. When I first read it, I, of course, I was imagining how you would stage it. And I thought, oh, this would be really fun, you know, for the actors to just shoot off some gibberish. And then I was like, oh, no, it's actually it's written. It is. He prescribes the gibberish. That's, yeah. that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys, let's listen to part of that scene where Paroles is kind of put under pressure and eventually kind of gives away all of the army's secrets. Um <laughs> So he's with a couple of soldiers and a lord. And of course, our hero, Bertram, is kind of witnessing all of this. And his faith in Parolis is slowly going to disintegrate. Let's listen to that scene. He calls for the torches. What will you say without them? I will confess what I know without constraint. If you pinch me like a pasty, I can say no more. Bosco Chirmarcho. Bubbly window chica, Marco. <laughs> you are a merciful general. Oh. Our general bids you answer to what I shall ask you out of a note. And truly, as I hope to live. First, demand of him how many horse the Duke is strong. Uh, five or six thousand. Oh, but very weak uh, and unserviceable. The commanders, very poor rogues, uh, upon my reputation and credit, as I hope to live. Shall I set down your answer, sir? Do, I will take the sacrament on. What a past-saving slave is this? This... Is Monsieur Paroles. Well, that's set down. Uh, five or six thousand horse, I said. Look, I will say true. Or, or thereabouts set down, for I will speak truth. He's very near the truth in this. Well, I caught me no thanks for it. And poor rogues, I pray you say. Uh, well, that's set down. Oh, I humbly thank you, sir. A truce of truth. The rogues are marvellous poor. You shall demand of him of what strength they are afoot. Uh, what say you to that? Um, well, let me see. Um, well, Spurio's 150. Um, Sebastian, so many. Jacques, so many. Carambas, so many. Uh, Giltian, Cosimo, Lodovic, and Grati, 215 each. Uh, mine own company, uh, Chittafor, Valmont, Grati, 250 each. So that's, um, well, the, the master file, rotten and sound, and that's not a, well, 15,000 pounds. Half of which dare not shake the snow from off their cassocks, lest they shake themselves to pieces. What should be done to him? <laughs> Nothing. But let him have thanks. So there we have it. Paroles giving an account of how many horses belong to how many lieutenants. He basically gives away all of the numbers of the army to who he believes are the enemy. And Bertram, you know, learns what he should have known from the very beginning of the play, that Paroles is no good. And the least amount of pressure applied to him, he gives away all the secrets there we have it. The second trap has been set and Parolis has been exposed. Matt, I'm going to come to you with another prediction. I'm going to ask you for a prediction. This is act four. Will we see Parolis again in act five? If so, how will we see him? Like what will be his role? Will he be, um, same old paroles. Will he have learned his lessons? Give us a prediction. Here's what here's what stands out to me in the paroles exchange with the lords and Bertram. So he basically exposes everything, not just the army, the make the constitution of the army, right, and the the quality of the commanders, but even the sins of specific people like Bertram. Yes. Yeah, totally, yes. totally okay. does. And Bertram hears all this. And so Bertram knows that he's a double crosser, not just to the army, but to even his friend. And, but here's what fascinates me. So Parole says, and this is scene three, 
I would do the man what honor I can, but of this, I am not certain. This is a response to something, you know, the question about the different people. And then the first Lord replies, he hath out villained villainy so mm. far that the rarity redeems him. <laughs> like now, he's so bad. <laughs> he's like coming back around. <laughs> his uniqueness is somehow like a redeeming trait. Something is that how you read that? Yeah. Well, yeah. and like like his he's so honest in exposing his dishonesty mm. that it's like redemptive. Mm. Now Bertram mm. denies, rejects it. A pox on him. He's a cat still. I don't know why they hate cats so much, but in this play, but in this he calls him a cat three times. Yes, he, he hates cats. And then, and then, it, you know, it goes on, and he asks for some more, you know, tell me more stuff about different people, right? And then it ends. Scene three ends with Paroles realizing he's been exposed and saying, "Who cannot be crushed with a plot?" And then the interpreter says, "If you could find out a country." where but women were that had received so much shame, you might begin an impudent nation. Fare you well, sir. I am for France too. We shall speak of you there. Right. So the interpreter is in, the interpreter is basically still kind of identifying him as an awful person and he needs to go find other awful people and then create a whole awful nation. Um, but Parole says by himself, I believe, right? Because the stage yeah, directions- he's alone on stage, yeah. Yeah, so earlier- Bertram and the Lords exited, and now the interpreter and the soldiers have exited. So he's alone on the stage, and he says, Yet am I thankful. If my heart were great, twould burst at this. Captain, I'll be no more, but I will eat and drink and sleep as soft as Captain shall. Simply, the, okay, so this is, this is interesting, because he might just be saying, I'm thankful that I'm still alive. I don't care what I just did to my right. friends and countrymen. I'm just glad that I'm alive. But he says, I will eat and drink and sleep as soft as captain shall. Simply the thing I am shall make me live. So there again, I I, I threw people under the bus and that's what's helping me to live. But I've been doing that my whole life. Who knows himself a bragger, let him fear this. For it will come to pass that every bragger shall be found an ass. Mm. Rust sword, cool blushes, and paroles live safest in shame. Being fooled by foolery thrive. There's place and means for every man alive all after them. And it kind of made me wonder if the, the one way to read this is Parole is just being thankful that he's still alive. But it could also be Parole is being thankful that he learned his lesson. Mm. Mm. And, and recognizing that he, he got his just desserts. That every braggart shall be found an ass. Right. And what is numbers, numbers 32, 23 or whatever says, um, yeah, you be sure your sin will find you out. Right. Yeah. Like he's accepting that, that and accepting that this is what is due him because that's who he was. or this is what he has to live with. And he's and he's thankful to have learned his lesson almost or perhaps. And so then that makes me wonder, OK, this is a long way around to, to your question for my prediction. But I wonder if. Okay, so my prediction in Act Two was Paroles will be exposed by an unnamed lord, if I remember correctly. I think I said an unnamed lord back then. And um, <laughs> um, okay, not Lefeu. Not no. Lefeu. <laughs> Everybody knew it wasn't going to be Lefeu. What kind of idiot would think it was Lefeu? <laughs> um, but he was going to be he was going to be exposed, and then this, and then Lefeu would be providing this positive advice. But what I think is actually turns out to might be happening is that is that Paroles gets exposed as the bad guy, so don't listen to him anymore. But then also Paroles gets redeemed mm. as somebody who accepts justice. Mm. And then that's going to be the positive influence on Bertram rather than Lefeu, which was, which was what I thought. In fact... There's a reason to believe that Lefeu might actually oppose the whole thing now because right. he thinks his daughter is going to marry right. Bertram, right? Um, or he wants his daughter to marry Bertram and the Countess is all on board, apparently. So I don't know what that's going to happen with Lefeu there, I wonder. But um, but now I wonder if Paroles is going to be a positive example to Bertram mm. as somebody who accepts 
just desserts. And this is what, <clears throat> I mean, if Bertram was going to concede to the marriage, it must be because he's accepting, if he's going to willingly concede to the marriage, then it must be because he's accepting his just desserts. So what makes him accept his just desserts? Parole's example? I don't know. <laughs> that was a well-reasoned prediction, Nora. Yes, I agree. Right? <laughs> it was Like good. a text-based prediction. That was really impressive. <laughs> I'm not saying it's true. I don't know. You know, we're going to withhold until we do act five. But I, I appreciate that was a, that was well done. It's kind of fun having to do it. <coughs> like you, that you cruelly make me make predictions. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is really, I think it is really fun because it's fun, of course, for those of us who know what's going to happen to kind of like giggle when we know when you don't exactly get it right or when you do get it right. But it's also kind of a test of the construction of any character. Yeah, I know? agree. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah, in the structure of the play, yeah, too, yeah. the work itself. Well, it's it's what it, what struck me in the in the having to do it now is um, I think it makes me read the text more closely because. Like I, I expect that that could be a question that gets asked and then I have to kind of make justifications and figure out like what's going on. It makes me want to read the, read the characters more closely, but then I think you're right. But I, th I wonder too, how much of it is, um, yeah, that he just, he like, if, if to the extent that I, that a person gets it right, the prediction, right. Then, then it, it confirms that he's telling the story in a way to make that possible. Right. Which is the yeah. question that you have at the end of a play like this, right? Or the end of Much Ado or the end of uh, Timmy the Shrew, right? When you have these right. like, like, is implausible it plausible? weddings. Right. And then you think, oh, he didn't really convince us that that was plausible. But when you have to do this, if you you start seeing the plausibility in it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, su surprise endings weren't really a, a Shakespearean thing you know last minute yeah. twist yeah that wasn't yeah, really yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah especially if it's a comedy especially right. if it's a comedy and oh, i mean we're into act four so right we're we're starting we're, we need to start tying up loose ends okay one of the questions that i want to ask next week and i'm not going to ask it now but just be prepared to answer this one is in the first act i asked you know is this comedy should we consider this a comedy <laughs> I'm going to ask that question again. If it's not a comedy, I would love to know what genre of Shakespeare you think it more neatly belongs into. Belongs mm. into, belongs in. Okay, so just to kind of catch us up with where we are in the play, by the end of scene three, we think Helena is dead. This rumor is being spread that Helena mm. is dead. Everyone kind of believes it. Bertram has heard this news, so has the countess, so has Lafew. And so Lafew and the countess are kind of like, hey, Bertram's heading home now that Helena is gone. Lafew is kind of thinking, for reasons that are beyond me, I know my my daughter would be um, well-suited to be married to Bertram. So he's kind of staked in it. And the countess is with it. So Bertram is heading home, and I think it's interesting that he's heading home alone, not just because he's not with Paroles, but because he's not with Diana. And mm. he had promised to her in scene two that he would marry her when his wife is dead, but he's not bringing her home with him. So... Again, not to belabor the point, but we're we're heading toward a marriage between Bertram and Helena in which Bertram is not Bertram is very hard to admire in any way. And I think you guys made a good case last week that Helena is worthy of admiring that she's not just cunning she's not just a trickster but she's kind of doing within her power in this upside down world what mm. she, she she is kind of like executing the work of sanctification and it does require mm. kind of like doing some things that she wouldn't do in a healthy 
um, morally robust society, but she's doing them anyway. Do you think, okay. do you think that, do you think that Bertram's anger at paroles, like where the first Lord says, well, his, he's out villainy is villainy. Mm. Um, and then, and then Bertram replies the pox on him. He's, you know, he's still a cat. Do you think that Bertram's anger toward paroles is similar enough? Like what paroles did to him is of the same kind that what of what Bertram did to Helena. And so it's so to the extent that per, that Bertram's indignation is righteous against Bertram, against Paroles, it would also be righteous to have it turned against himself for what he did to Helena. And that at this point, that just hasn't been pointed out to him. Right. He's not had like the Nathan, the prophet moment. The Nathan moment. Yeah. Right. Right. Nathan goes to David. He tells the story about a rich man who takes the one sheep from the poor man's fold. And David hears about it. His own background as a shepherd. He's irate. How dare this rich man? And Nathan exposes him. You're the rich man. You slept with Bathsheba. You took, you know, you took her from her husband. You took him into your, into, you took her into your own and he's exposed. And so what Dave, that David's response was sackcloth and ashes. He rends his garments. Like he sees it, you know, that's the question I think that's facing Bertram in act mm. five. And I think that's mm. the thing that we have to look for. And Nora and I are not saying anything. Nope. Sorry, Nora. I came up, I keep like nope. talking about all the things we can't say. We cannot talk. Because yeah. paroles, I think it could be argued that in that in that last you know soliloquy, paroles might be in sackcloth and ashes, right? Accepting his fate. I mean, he might be. I, you know, I don't know. He might be. He might be just thankful to be alive. Uh, but he might also be kind of accepting his fate in a yeah. sackcloth and ashes kind of way. And then is that. If insofar as Paroles is the foil to Bertram and, you know, they, they're both deceptive in the same way. Does this, does this, is this set of the stage for Bertram to be repentant in a way that Paroles is, if he is, um, but he just needs that, mm. that sin pointed out for him. So he needs that sin pointed out for him. And then he needs the positive example. He needs those two things. And I think she's going to do it. And there's, there's, um, Yes, yeah, so I got to see how that happens. Of course, to right. Know, right, and then, yeah, yeah. There, there was something else though that I wanted to bring up, but I don't want to. I, I don't want to keep jumping in because why not? Come on, Come go on. for All right. it. All right, okay, Diana. I like Diana. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure that you guys despise her because she participates in a wicked plot. <laughs> but I love her for it. And she says, okay, she says in her soliloquy, Bertram's left. And she says, only in this disguise, I think it no sin to cozen him that would unjustly win. And, you know, so we were asking the question last call about, the the justice or injustice of the plot you know helena says we we talked about for a little bit right is wicked meaning in a lawful deed and lawful meaning in a lawful act when we're both not sinning yet a sinful fact and we were talking about it was she confessing the the unlawfulness of it i guess but diana seems to be fully on board with the justice of this of this plot right in this, oh, this I think disguise, so. I think it yeah. no sin to cozen him that would unjustly win. Yeah, I think so. I agree. She's she's entirely on board. And and I, you know, we talked earlier about her pointing out his duty to his wife and uh, that it, it, it's important to note that she's already had conversations with Helena. Right. So she, she knows the whole story. She knows all the background and all of that. She knows what's happening here. This isn't just 
no, I mean, maybe she would be anyway, but she hasn't just been taken in by some random young man and then finds out, oh, he's got a wife back at home, right? Like she knows everything before she goes into it. Yeah. Um, and I still think probably, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that it's not supported in the text that she's not the first. Um, mm-hmm. I would think that probably she isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, Parole's confession about Bertram seems to indicate that as much, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. The w- there there was there's the interesting line too because I think doesn't he say to her when she brings up his wife doesn't he say, well she was forced on me but I love you. I think he does say something, something like that. that. At least. And yeah. Even there, I think you get go, kind of going back to the to the what marriage is in their world. Um. Like she doesn't respond. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. That's unfair. So yeah, let's go ahead and, you know, hook up. Right. Like she doesn't buy that, that the fact that they love each other overcomes the, the circumstances of the, of his marriage to Helena. She sees it as he's still bound to Helena. Right. Although I guess she does say, yeah, let's hook up, but that's because of the plot, not because. <laughs> <laughs> well, and her her response to him is actually pretty, I don't know, pretty progressive, probably for her time. Um, she talks about uh, when you have our roses, you barely leave our thorns to prick ourselves and mock us and with our barrenness. Mm. Like, I know what you're about, dude. Yeah. yeah. You know, I see like you're you. just going to. You know, you're going to dip for sure. Yeah. But, and he does. And he definitely does. Yeah. yeah. She's not, she's not taken in. And I don't know that she, I don't know. We don't know whether she would have or not, uh, you know, had she not met Helena. But certainly her response is, is uh, well thought out. I made a note in the, the scene with um, LeFew. Because his very opening line to the Countess is, no, 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 your son was misled. And so I, I made a note there, you know, like, oh, see, here's another person showing pity on Bertram because of his awful friend. And then. Yeah. And then, well, and what about the fact that he's he's like, yeah, he should marry my daughter. Yeah, like, that's well. Then when I got to that line, he's like, I moved the king, my master, to speak in the behalf of my daughter. And I was like, oh, that's why he's so willing to forgive and show pity on Bertram for right. Parole's part. But like, what what recommends Bertram as a son-in-law? Right? Like, why Money? would he? It's, so I don't know. I, I mean, Lefeu doesn't seem to be any lower sure. in rank, does he? I don't know. But I I think that maybe that lends itself a little bit more to Bertram's character, sort of as as I was thinking of him, like as this not young uh impudent boy um in in honestly in need of a good wife yeah, right yeah, and so if lefew believes that he's that you know helena really is dead then maybe he's like oof we gotta we gotta get this guy remarried like quick mm. and you know my daughter is a virtuous woman she can hopefully do some of the work that helena was trying to do for him as well um, so, so again, you know, maybe there's something I like that redeemable rating. in him, I like you know, that. But, so that, that he's not just this blatantly evil, um, terrible man, but he's, he's, he's a, you know, a boy that really needs to be, <laughs> to have all these people around him, just trying against his best efforts to, to help him. Oh. Nora, I really agree. I, I, more and more, the deeper I get into this play, the more I think. I really think that you would have to cast Bertram as a young man. The play just seems to, I I think the play gets wobbly if it's not a young man playing this role. Because right now, I mean, this is, I'm going to just express my frustration with the play. Right now, at the end of Act 4, and maybe there will be a metanoia, a turning in Act 5. We don't know yet. We don't know yet, right, Matt? We don't know yet. But as of right now, Bertram is just responding to whatever pressure applies the most pain to him. Maybe, yeah, in, and, you know, in one scene, it's Helena and another scene, it's his mother and another scene, it's Paroles and another scene, it's the counts. There doesn't seem, again, at the end of act 
asked for to be an internal, willful, choosing individual. Right. Like he's not practicing really any autonomy in, yeah. in most of this, which, you know, it, <laughs> after his first forced marriage, now they're already setting up a second forced uh-huh. marriage. Uh-huh. <laughs> so maybe it's not so much about, you know, oh, well, it's no big deal. You're just forced to be married. Maybe it's like, no, you specifically, Bertram, you must be married and you must be married to these to this very specifically chosen woman. Mm. Who yeah, it's the only chance of salvation that you've got. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's way more about him in particular. Right. That's good. I like that. I don't I don't know if I made the, the point clear enough, but the the point about his indignation at paroles was uh, be, besides the need for a Nathan, the um I, I think that might also be more evidence of his own virtue. The Oh, that he can recognize it. Yeah, he just I mean someone else. He hasn't he hasn't directed it at himself yet. But yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's angry about the right things. Man, don't you see that too in, uh, I mean, I, I see that in my kids, right? Or I, I saw it in them as they were younger. I remember when we read um, Great Expectations together uh, for the first time and they were, they were so mad at Pip for for not appreciating Joe, mm, mm. right? This this incredible, beautifully written literary figure. I love I love Joe. Um, and Pip is just so unappreciative and so flippant about Joe and, and just never, he doesn't learn to appreciate him until he himself, you know, is a man and, and can understand that. And I, isn't, is that sort of what you see Mm. with, uh, with Bertram here? Like, Oh, how could someone do that to someone Mm. else? Right. Yeah. I, well, yes, I see it in children and myself. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so listen here are the things that i think that we're looking for in act five what's going to happen to paroles we've got a prediction on that uh will that will bertram have a turn an internal turn like we know he's going to get married so we know he's going to turn in that way but will that marriage be accompanied by kind of an internal like recognition Mm-hmm. a spiritual change of some sort. Um, I am curious what is going to happen with Diana and her mom. It seems to me like those are the, like the big, that third one is not a huge plot point. The main one is what is going to be for me, what is going to be Bertram's state when he, um, kind of realizes that he's consummated the marriage and that he is now like really married to Helena. Is this a, is this a clue for me that, that Diana and her mother make a return appearance in act five? Oh yeah. I guess I gave that away. Didn't I? Well, yeah, I, I guess yeah, I just I guess, assumed that they were done. Like they played their part and now we're moving on, but cool. No, they're not, they're not completely done yet. My apologies, Matt. My apologies. Spoilers. Spoilers. I mean, it's not That's a huge right. spoiler, but <laughs> this character yeah. is still in the play. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to remind everybody that you guys can join the conversation online through our sister podcast, Close Reads Facebook page. So if you search the Close Reads Facebook page, um, you will find all sorts of conversation Uh, about the book that's being read right now on Close Reads. And, of course, talk about this play. Um, After Act 5, we will have a Q&A with you, our listeners. So if you would like to chime in and ask Matt or Nora or myself any questions about this play, anything we've neglected, please do so there. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods and via email by writing closereadspodcast at gmail.com. So that's a I don't great know if, you to participate. if I'm allowed to say this. Please. So I'm not going to say it, but <laughs> there's another sister coming. Oh, Please? I've heard. I've heard the rumor. Yeah. I haven't heard. Can you tell us much about the other sister podcast? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I could probably find out for the next one. So I, I'll get, yeah. I'll find out and get more details for the next one. But Perfect. there's there's another sister coming, another podcast following the same format that because it you know it, it works uh, with three three hosts and or three people that will be discussing books. It's <laughs> mighty ambiguous, Matthew. Yeah, be I know. <laughs> I know. Um, this podcast is on the Circe Institute platform. If you would like to know more about Christian classical education, what it is, how to get involved, go to circeinstitute.org. And by the way, last plug, I swear, I teach Shakespeare and um, I do what I call Shakespeare showcases. So if you have any interest about doing a Shakespeare showcase at your school, go to timteachesshakespeare.com and learn more there. Okay, that's all the plugs we've got time for you guys. Act five, next week, everything will be resolved. To our satisfaction, that is the main question. Thanks for joining me, and we'll see you guys in a week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.